Well, hey, good morning, everybody. Good to see all of you guys. Uh, this is your first time here at Hill City. My name is John Wagler. I'm part of this team and uh, just grateful uh, you're spending a portion of your Sunday here with us. Uh, we are in week 11 of this six-week series. Uh, that uh, originally was going to be six weeks, and we have just kept going on this sucker. And uh, we've been looking at the book of Acts and kind of hovering in the book of Acts for essentially this entire summer. And we're going to be spending a few more weeks in it uh, because... We've been talking about this idea of something happening, that there's a move of God that's happening in this beautiful and sweet way. And we've been looking at all the ways that in all these different kinds of movements throughout history, uh, starting with the beginning of the church in the book of Acts, like how, what are some of the commonalities? How, what are the, the common points of interest that kind of transcend whatever the time is, transcend uh, the generation? And so uh, we started in the book of Acts because that's the start of the church and, and was the biggest kind of original move of God within this church body. And so uh, we've been looking at each week but something different that happened in the book of Acts and how can we take something uh, away from it? Uh, and so even like last week, we talked about singing so much, right? And so, because singing is such a vital part of how we engage uh, Jesus and the Spirit of God in us. And so uh, today though, I, I want to talk about this, this word that uh, Lacey and I were talking about th- this week and, and kind of talking about what do we want to, you know, challenge people with and, and this word that came uh, to both of us as we were talking about was simply this, compromise. Um, compromise. Now, when I, when I say that word, uh, we've all, um, you can make a, if you're trying to make a deal with someone, you, you can have a compromise, right? Uh, with your siblings, you probably compromised at some level or another. Uh, if you've dated, been married, friendship, friendship, any relationship, there's been some sort of, of compromise in, in that moment. Uh, how many of you guys have compromised uh, the truth sometimes? Yeah, we're all on the same page, right? Like at some point in your life, um, you compromised what you knew was true for one reason or another, right? You knew it wasn't right to make that decision, but you compromised the truth of it and you made it anyway because you just wanted to do what you wanted to do, as an example. And so uh, we've, we've all been there, we've all done it, or we've all kind of shied away from the truth and we want to compromise, um, certainly we've compromised our, our witness, but we've, we've compromised in, in one way or another. And what I want to talk about today, though, is this element of not compromising the truth. Now, when I say this, there's little t truth, right? Like when I say little t truth, there, there are things that are true sometimes, and like maybe aren't true in others. Like in one situation, you might have handled, you know, a certain way with a person, and that was the true and right way to do it. But with another person, it might not be the true and right way to do it. So there's, there's little t true. There's, there's some reality that there's uh, some things that are facts that are, are true. Like the Yankees are currently in last place. That is true, okay? So there's a true statement, right? Yes, the Red Sox are also in last place. They're tied. Um, but Red Sox are for the glory of God. The Yankees are from the pit of hell. And so, um, so but th- some facts are, are true, all right? So even uh, Ruby this past week was re- uh, reading the back of the box of Cheerios, and they had these statements. Some were true, some were false uh, about bananas and strawberries. And so we're going through all of them, and, and there were two that were uh, false, and then there were, I think, four that were true. And she looks at me, and she goes, Dad, why would anyone want to put something false on there? 
why don't they just say what is true? And I was like, ah, same girl, I hear you. Like there's something like profound about this idea of, of wanting to, to know the truth. Uh, we live in a world right now where when it comes to truth, it's a lot of like, you live your truth, I'll live my truth, don't compromise, like, like don't come at me with your truth because my truth is different than your truth. And, and it's actually an incredibly dumb way to live, okay? It's like that statement in and of itself, you live your truth, my truth, makes me want to vomit in my mouth, all right, because of the, how illogical it actually is, okay? Um, but we, but people live their lives, and, and kind of structurally, when we look at the world around us, like, this is what we live in around this idea of truth, and again, in particular, small t, truth. And you can debate things about truth, and you can go back and forth and, uh, about certain matters, what you might think is true and someone else is true, and, and that's okay. Like, those things are, are okay, but at some point, you've got to get to larger truth, and in particular, the largest truth, which becomes um, kind of the centering point. When you look at the systems uh, around us when it comes to, to truth, uh, there's a collective truth that is kind of out there, and then we base all of our systems off of it. Okay, and so uh, the way that the, we live in, whether it's an economic system, a government system, or any kind of political system, school systems, whatever, those are based off of kind of collective truths, and then they build systems around that, all right? And then within these systems, uh, we find and in, in, in experience some kind of security within these systems sometimes. And so uh, like a truth like around a, a system that we have is, is like Wall Street, right? And we, we think we have some kind of a security in Wall Street until the stock market crashes and then we don't, right? Then all of a sudden we're like, what? Like, what happened, right? Uh, there's a, a system that was built uh, where uh, the collective truth was if you had the strongest military, you're like, you're good, you're safe, it's secure. And then something like 9-11 happens, right? And it fractures it and you, and you feel it. It's like, whoa, I thought this was going to give me security, but it, it doesn't. There's, a, there's something true about having a strong military, right, that keeps you safe and secure. But, but you realize, oh, it's not like fully safe or fully secure. And uh, what the Bible would actually call those is like a stronghold. It's a stronghold. And, uh, and so we can have personal strongholds that we think will, will bring us security. Um, you can have kind of collective communal strongholds. And the Bible talks about this a lot because uh, when you look at the strongholds in our lives, you realize, oh, we are, we are forming these things to give us a kind of security about life, about relationships, about whatever. And you realize how fragile they are. Because if they're not built on a, a larger capital T truth as like the signpost and the centering point of your life, Everything becomes so fragile, and in the in, like instantaneously, it can all be stripped away. I mean, I mean, you think about if you've gone through some suffering or pain around, uh, and, and and you have like money like taken away, and had great financial hardship. At one point in time, you thought you were good with money, and all of a sudden, boom, it can be gone. And that stronghold you might have had in your life that you thought was so secure, is gone. And then what are you left with? And so it becomes so important then begin to engage this in uh, the right way. So in the book of Acts in chapter 17, Paul, he is... He has traveled uh, all around uh, his, his world at that point in time and gone to these different areas uh, of the country. And, and he's been this great missionary. And a lot of people are coming to believe in Jesus and follow Jesus. And, and then he comes and he decides to make a, a trip and a stop into Greece, uh, into Athens, which is like the centering point of philosophical thought. 
And so people are going to uh, always talk about ideas, like idea after idea after idea, right? And ideas are important because idea actually form our actions. And so, um, so Greece is the centering point of this. And what Paul does is he goes to this place called the Areopagus. And this is where people will like debate big ideas, all right? So Paul steps into this moment um, that we're going to read. And he's debating with these incredible thinkers, incredible thinkers about what is truth. And how does this world actually uh, work? And so in Acts chapter 17, starts here and he says this. Paul then stood up in the meeting of the Areopagus and said, People of Athens, I see that in every way you are religious. All right? So he's, he's framing this. He's like, I, I see who you guys are. I see that you care. I see that you are really interested in how all of this works. He says, I walked around and looked carefully at your objects of worship. I even found an altar with this inscription, To an unknown God. So you are ignorant of the very thing you worship, and this is what I am going to proclaim to you. The God who made the world and everything in it is the Lord of heaven and earth and does not live in temples built by human hands. He is not served by human hands as if he needed anything. Rather, he himself gives everyone life and breath and everything else. From one man he made all the nations that they should inhabit the whole earth. He marked out their appointed times in history and the boundaries of their lands. God did this so they would seek him and perhaps reach out for him and find him, though he's not far from any of us. For in him we live and move and have our being. And as some of your own poets have said, we are his offspring. So Paul's like, hey, the, your very being, the core of who you are as a human, like in him we live and move and have our being is in the reality and the truth of who God is. It says, therefore, since we are God's offspring, we should, not think, uh, we, we should not think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image made by human design and skill. In the past, God overlooked such ignorance, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent. For he has set a day when he will judge the, the world with justice by the man he has appointed. He has given proof of this to everyone by raising him from the dead. Who did he raise from the dead? Good job. Good job. All right. So Paul, he gets to this point and he's, in, in, he's reasoning with these people. Now he's, he's, he's kind of coming at them pretty aggressively in his language, but he's also doing it with a lot of love and grace. He's not trying to drop some kind of truth bomb on him. He's contextualizing the reality of how he's speaking uh, to these guys, and he's operating within their context. And so he's reasoning with them. He's like, man, you guys have this thing over here to this unknown God. You've lined up all these other gods. You've got this, this unknown God, and you're worshiping all of this God. You're even worshiping an unknown God. He's like, let me put some language and some truth to what that unknown God actually is. See, what Paul is actually addressing here in this moment is the reality that they have been deceived to some level. And uh, now, how do we get deceived? We get deceived by ideas, okay? And when we open ourselves up to ideas, you, whether they are good or bad, when you open yourself up to ideas, you also open yourself up to be influenced by them. How many of you guys have been duped by an idea at some point in your life? When you were like, oh man, I was an idiot, right? In that moment, you were influenced by an idea that you thought was good, and you made decisions and actions off of that idea, and you just got deceived or duped by it. And we all have been in that space. 
And so um, this is the, the reality of humanity. And the Bible actually talks about this in Genesis chapter 3 when it's talking about the creation story. And you've got uh, the, the, the reality, it's describing the, the creation of humanity. And, and with this one point in the story, the serpent comes and, and he tempts Adam and Eve. And in that temptation, what does the serpent tempt them with? An idea. Tempts them with an idea. He tempts them with this idea that, you know what, you're good on your own. You're, listen, God's withholding something from you. Like, you'll find it on your own. Like, God just doesn't want you to be just like him. And he, he's tempting them with an idea. That idea then influences them. They hide. They, they're filled with shame. Um, and they go against what God told them to do and how them to live. They were tempted by an idea. And it changed everything. It changed everything in their life. And in the same way, when we get tempted by an idea, it changes our lives. If I were to go around here and just give you a mic and I would say, tell me about your biggest regret. Um, I'm going to go ahead and assume a lot of you wouldn't be excited to talk about that. But uh, like, what was your, your, your biggest regret? And then I would ask you, how did you get there? And it would have started with this. Well, there is this idea, or I had this idea, or someone told me about Someone said, you know, this, take this. This is a good idea. Or you had a friend who was like, you should date him. Right? Like, so you have like these moments, like, seems like a good idea, but you went and we got deceived by something. So these ideas come in and they form structures and they form a lot of different things within how we operate and live. And so Paul is kind of referencing this. And so we see stuff all the time. Uh, right now, uh, one of the guys that I love to read is a guy by the name of Mark Sayers and um, or listen to as well. And uh, he's just a brilliant, brilliant thinker. And I'm always intrigued by kind of how his brain is working, what God is kind of putting before him. And, and, uh, and he's recently talking about how we're, we're always uh, within the context of like some kind of world order, okay, that's happening, like how the world is organized and designed and, and how the systems work within this world. And so there's always like a world order of everything. And he talks about how back in the 1920s, and this is like in a small example of how some of these structures are work and based off of collective truths. Back in the 1920s, uh, there was this uh, war and peace study group that got together in New York City. And they would get together quite often, and in the midst of this, they would uh, not actually talk about a war per se, not all the time, but they had this idea of the grand area. And in the 1920s, when, when this happened, America became a focal point of this concept because of the location of America, the possibility of economic uh, survival, and then uh, with military might as well. And so all these guys from all over the world got together, and they began talking about, like, what does it look like uh, to, to create this kind of world order? And so, and how do we organize the world? And so it's interesting, one of the guys named Walter Lipton, who was a part of uh, this, this group, uh, he says that, um, he, he says this, he goes, this wasn't about the prevention of war. It was about to how to organize all of mankind. And so what is it? They, they had this collective truth of what they believed to, to be the best, and they started forming all of these systems in the 1920s. And then in that, they created this economic system that would soon be developed. What uh, the military system would, would soon uh, begin to look like, uh, it led to this pathway of like, globalization, which we, we experience uh, now. It was all kind of forming in this little moment. And, and those kind of collective truths, what they thought was, was but they, they built this stronghold, they built this system that they thought was the truth of what was best for mankind. Well, uh, World War II uh, soon happens, and then things started getting a little shaky with some of it. 
And then eventually, uh, the 1970s happened, late 60s and then the 70s happened, and then a new kind of world order starts to happen. Uh, it started warring against what was before them, and then this new kind of system of self-expression started coming into play. Uh, then you had terminology like the free market, like that, that term started getting thrown around uh, a lot, but also at the same time, free love was uh, as well. And then this fixation on exploring and frontierism and self-expression uh, was the center point of kind of this new world order. Um, some people call, use the phrase neoliberalism around this. And, and you had like the choice and you could do whatever you wanted to do. You want to do something sexually, go ahead and you can do that. You want to do something like financially, go ahead and do that. You want to buy that. And then what started to happen is all the economics started to change as well. And in the midst of the economics starting to changing, like even how corporations engaged with us with marketing started to change. And everything became, became uh, about being a consumer. And so uh, this idea of being a consumer started bleeding into all of our lives. And so um, back in the 1940s and even earlier than that, you saved to buy things. And, and so if you had the money, then you bought it. Um, and then, but now all of a sudden started shifting. It was like debt was leveraged as a good. And so everything began to start shifting and changing. And so debt became leveraged and marketed and everything. And then uh, it's like, oh, you got a lot of debt? Great. How many of you guys love that you have debt? Right? Yeah, but what, what is that? That's a product. It's a product of what was cultivated in the system um, that is you, you were raised in and nurtured in. And this system created these strongholds. And the system became kind of how I phrased the, the order of uh, humanity. And then uh, we started seeing kind of what happened sexually and all this other stuff. And, and then as it, uh, it kind of, think about it this way, as all of this kind of liberalism, and I don't mean uh, conservative and liberalism, I mean like the, the, the ability to just choose whatever you wanted to do. Uh, the idea of being able to choose whatever you want to do and live however you want to live in this like extreme self-expression, essentially what has now transpired is we lust after everything that's on our screen. And so... All these things started lining up uh, in this way. Well, how did it start? Well, there's this collective truth that they thought. They built the system off of it. And, uh, and, and then we experience it as humankind, or mankind. Well, the system became about the self. Well, here's the thing. Like, then within the church world, you, Christians had to figure out, like, how does the church engage in this? Like, we, we say we hold to this truth, but then how do we engage the world around us? And so uh, Christians started gathering around in the 1970s, and then uh, Jerry Falwell and some other uh, guys got together with this thing called the moral majority. And they thought this would be the way to kind of counteract what's happening in the world. Now, was there some good in what was done in it? Yeah, there was some good uh, around it. And then there's uh, also a lot of bad that was done with this idea of the moral majority. Why? Because here's what was starting to happen. Christians were compromising on truth. In that moment, the truth is who? That should be louder. The truth is who? Jesus. Yeah. But when it becomes about political power, you've compromised on the truth of Jesus. And so it started to happen uh, aggressively so in the 1970s. Now, what, again, was there some good in the moral majority movement? Yeah. But then there was also some bad that became... Uh, a really powerful thing within the context of what it looks like for Christians and government and how this intermingles together. Um, soon after that, in the 1980s, churches were wondering, like, how do we, um, people are, are not going to churches regularly and things are getting a little loose with morals. And so there's this, uh, the system that was already built up within the church was, was failing. And so they, they, this concept of the attractional church model became available. And what did this look like? Um, this looked like, let's, let's get like a lot of lights and like some smoke and big things that people would be like, ooh, I can get entertained at church. 
And so they would have these things they would put on maybe big productions or they have like big music and like loud music and trying to match the reality of what was happening in the world. Now, was some of that good? Yes, absolutely. Some really good things came out of it. And why wouldn't you want your church to be attractive, right? You want a repulsive church? You know, like, no, you don't want that. Um, but, but was there some bad? Yes, there always is. Well, what was compromised? What was compromised was so often as they look back at that era of church right now, and they'll look back at this era and say some things about this era too. But when they looked back at that era of church, what ended up happening was it was pretty shallow. And the idea was, not for everybody, but the idea was if we could just get them in however we can get them in. And what it built was this kind of shallow Christianity that wasn't able to withstand suffering and pain, wasn't able to withstand um, uh, the, the reality of the world that was happening around them. Why? Because the truth was compromised. Fast forward in like a little different section for Christians. Um, there was a time, how many of you guys remember a time where there was no youth sports on Sundays? Like there was a time, okay? Some of you guys are like 25, you're like, I don't know. Like that's all we've ever known, right? There was a time where there wasn't youth sports on Sundays. And, uh, and listen, I'm not judging anyone. Like, I get, like, it's hard. Unless I'm a huge fan of sports. I play college sports. Like, I love sports. But priorities shifted, and people compromised. And that brought about some realities culturally. So think about it. Can you imagine? Can you imagine this? If every Christian, like, in probably, like, the early 90s in particular, um, it really started taking shape late 90s, early 2000s. But can you imagine if all Christian like, families were like, we're not going to play on Sundays? Would it have made a difference? Yes. yes. But what happened was there was this compromise that started to happen. Okay? I'm not judging anyone. Like, it's hard. There's compromises that started to happen. And priorities begin to shift. What is youth sports? Youth sports are, are kind of like, and they're wonderful, but they can also be a stronghold. You think there's so much security in, in sports, but then when you realize, oh, like 1% of people go on and play college anything. Far less than that play it professionally. And you realize, oh, wait, what, have, what has actually been built in? Well, you start seeing these strongholds get, you know, when you compromise some of the reality, it can get stripped away and your security is gone. And so it's like, all right, then, then if I don't want to compromise, then like, what am I supposed to like focusing on? And it's like, well, we as Christians believe the truth is who? And we never compromise on that. Ever. We never compromise on that truth. Yep, there's ebbs and flows. And listen, if you have your kids play sports on Sunday sometimes, I, I'm not saying you're compromising on Jesus. I'm just saying, like, can we, can we, like, process this together? And start seeing, like, are there areas that I might be compromising on the truth? And it might be kind of holding up another kind of secure, um, stronghold in my life or a system in my life that has begun to compromise the truth and the reality of what Jesus actually taught. If you don't have a filter, the right kind of filter, we will fall for any idea. So if the lens of how we live our lives and see our lives, if, like, if the filter isn't Jesus, we will fall for any idea that seems to sound good. And so we need this kind of filter. I was thinking about filters. Um, when we went to uh, Brazil, this is, I don't even know how many years ago, we were on a missions trip, and the missionary comes up, and he's like, hey, you guys need a filter for your, your waters. 
And, and so some of the people on the trip were like, no, nah, we're good. Like, we're fine. Because, like, it was questionable whether or not you could drink the water because the locals drank the water. But it was questionable. And the missionary was like, no, you, you really need um, filters for your water. A few people on the trip were like, no, we're not going to do it. Um, two days later, they're literally pooping their pants. Like, they're, like, it's, it's like happening. And so isn't that what we do sometimes? When we don't have the right filter, someone's like, you need this right filter, Right? And, and sometimes in life, we might poop our pants, okay? And so, and we see this reality of like without the right filter in our lives, without the right filter in our lives, man, a lot of stuff starts happening. A lot of stuff starts happening. And it's like, man, if I can filter everything through Jesus, then I'm not compromising truth. So when things start going crazy in your life, if, if Jesus is the centering point, I'm not going to get deceived, if, if, if the, I have the right filter in my life and Jesus is the centering point, this is all Paul is saying. Don't compromise on the truth of who Jesus is. It's not just that Jesus died and rose again. That's a big deal. But it's also what Jesus taught. Like, don't compromise on what Jesus taught. Don't compromise on the truth of what Jesus said and who he is. Because if we can keep it in this place, all right, things are spinning out of control, everything. But, but if I don't compromise on the reality and the truth of who Jesus is, and everything starts to st- take shape the way uh, that it should. Now, um, what's the end result if we, do, if we don't have the right filter? And when I say like the right filter, I mean the right filter with Jesus. The, that being the centering point, the truth of our life. Um, we will lose hope. We'll lose optimism. We'll lose commitment. We'll lose resilience. We'll lose our identity. But these are the things that start to happen when we compromise the reality and the truth of who Jesus is in our life. You lose hope. Well, why? Because where else are you going to get hope from? You know, and it's like you kind of go down this list. It's like, man, if Jesus is the centering point of this, I don't compromise on this. It becomes, this becomes how I just filter everything in my life. And life's going to throw some, some stuff at you. But if Jesus is the centering point, then, man, all these other, like, strongholds, all these other things that we think bring security, it starts framing them in the right way and understanding them in the right way. That's all Paul's doing here with these people. He's like, there are a lot of ideas out there. But let me tell you about that unknown God. Let me tell you about this. Like, there are a lot of ideas, but let me recenter you where uh, you should be. So here's some realities about if there's some deception going on in your life. I was writing these down. I was like, all right, what, what are some kind of common uh, commonalities that I see with people? And I'm like, oh, there's some deception that's happening. And this can happen to any of us. There's four signs that there's some deception happening in your life. Bible loses authority. It becomes completely watered down. It doesn't matter, you know, just how you feel, whatever. Um, the Bible loses authority in your life. You can't find how an opinion is linked to Jesus yet still justify it. It's like you, you, you have this certain opinion and someone comes up to you and is like, hey, did Jesus teach that? And like, it doesn't matter. Like this is, it's, it's like, no, no, no. How we see life and our opinions, it's got to tie into what Jesus taught. If it doesn't, then there's some compromising going on. We're deceived in some kind of way. If, the easiest way to say that is if your opinion doesn't match up with what Jesus taught, guess what? You're wrong. And so um, it's the sign that we've been deceived in some kind of way. The exclusiveness of Jesus feels more like a threat than a comfort. Uh, one thing that you will constantly see in the Bible, um, you see a lot of grace, you see a lot of, even the way Jesus taught, you, you see this. 
We cannot deny, and I'll show you a few scriptures here in just a second. You cannot deny the reality of also what Jesus said about himself. He made some very exclusive claims. And sometimes, here's what ends up happening. Uh, you might have a, a family member. You might have someone in your life. You might have a friend. Uh, you might be married to someone. You might be, whatever. And the idea of Jesus, as we'll see here in just a second, when he says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. He doesn't say, I'm kind of those things. He says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. I am the Son of God, uh, is the truth of me. Like, I'm what sets you free. We'll read all those scriptures in just a second. It's interesting. Sometimes we as Christians get uncomfortable with that because we're like, ah, that might be, like, offensive to someone. And I'd, I'd rather, like, like, slowly get them in. And maybe Jesus would be like, 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 kindly. And it's like, the problem with that model is Jesus didn't do that. The problem with that model is like when we read in Acts, like they never did that. They never compromised on the truth of who Jesus was. Now, do they contextualize? Of course. Were they gracious in people's process? Of course. You never jerk about it. You never anything like that. You're like, you know, if someone is bleeding something different or wrestling with their faith, or whatever, you're, you're in it with them and you love them in it. But we can't shy away from the reality of what Jesus said. Some of the problems that I think we have as Christians and why the church has lost so much influence is we've gotten really uncomfortable with the truth of what Jesus said about himself. And we'd rather make it easily digestible than actually what Jesus actually taught. It's like, if we just make it nice, then it, then it, then it works. And listen, I, you, you guys know this if you've been here. It's like, yeah, all for safe space. I'm all for asking questions. I'm all for doing this together with grace and kindness and love and all those things. Absolutely. But one thing I would never compromise on in a discussion about faith or religion is like, this is what I believe, that Jesus died and he rose again. And that he said he was the only way. We, we can't compromise on that. And then you... Then we explore together and we figure out what that means and we, and we see all those things. That's wonderful. We can't do it. And the last thing there is like we become indifferent to things described as opposing the kingdom of God. Like we look at the world around us and it's like, eh, it's not that big of a deal. What are those things? Let me give you a list. Here are just some of the things um, that in, in the Bible it talks about being in opposition to the, the kingdom of God. Idolatry, witchcraft, hatred, jealousy, fits of rage, selfish ambition, factions or division, um, envy, drunkenness, lying, prideful, sexual immorality, orgies, greed, gossip, obscene talk, empty manipulative talk, unethical business practices, abuse of power, mocking, enjoying misfortunes of others, slander, and abusers. Some of those on the list, you're like, oh, we would never. Like, it's easy. Some of those other things on the list, like gossip. Oops. Right? And again, I'm not claiming perfection or anything. It's just like, if we become indifferent to these things that Jesus taught and Paul taught and Peter taught and all these guys taught, uh, indifferent to the things that he said were in opposition to the kingdom of God, of course we're going to get deceived. Of course we're going to get watered down. Of course we're going to lose influence. Of course we're not going to experience the spirit of God like we should. It makes sense. 
And so what we're seeing is that we, we, we don't want that. We don't want any part of that. This is also why when you, you read through scripture and you see so many uh, phrases where uh, someone like Paul might say to always stay alert or be alert or to be sober-minded. Why is he saying these things? Or be on guard or my favorite one, Peter, like gird your loins. Why, why does he say that? He's, they say those things because they're like, they want you to be ready. Like, don't become indifferent to the reality of things that actually oppose Jesus. And so for all these things that we've been talking about, like this was one of them where I'm like, this is going to be the hardest one for people to actually take in. Because a lot of, like last week when we sang, how easy was that? And this is fun, right? Lamont and Sharice get up here and sing this beautiful song. We, he, and we all sing together. We do, and everything, sing feels so good and easy, right? But when we get to something like this, and it's like, oh, by the way, they never compromise on the truth and the reality of who Jesus is. Well, if you're feeling uncomfortable, then I would say, because it was uncomfortable writing this. So if you feel uncomfortable, well, what is it in those moments? Oh, it's like, oh. Like, this is the thought I had for my own life. And some of these notes I've written down, and I was like, man, this is, this is a lot to take in. And I think in those moments, I'm like, I pause, and I'm like, why do I think it's a lot? And you realize some of it might be because you're thinking of someone Right? And it makes it harder. It makes it harder. And some of it is, I believe, that we don't trust the Spirit of God enough. See, we think, we think uh, that it's by what we do that, man, that person, if, they'll get saved. It's like, no, the Spirit of God does this, what the Spirit of God does. And sometimes I don't think we trust the move of the Spirit enough, what the Spirit might be doing in someone's heart. And so there's a challenge for all of us in the midst of something like this to figure out, like, what, what is it in me? It makes it hard. It's, it's hard. I'm not claiming it's easy. But for all of us, it's like, man, am I compromising on some of these uh, realities? I want you to see what Jesus said about himself. John 8, 31, 32, says this, To the Jews who had believed in him, Jesus said, If you hold to my teaching, you are really my disciples. That is a hard thought. Because what does it mean if we're not holding to his teachings? We're not one of his disciples. That's, like, that's a hard saying. It says, then you will know the truth. Now, we love this part, right? Because this is like a kind of one of those culturally known sayings. And the truth will set you free. I always laugh at that one because I'm like, man, people don't really know what was said before that. John 10.10, 10, the thief comes to steal, kill, and destroy. He's like, I have come that they might have life, meaning that without Jesus, you can't have a fullness of life. That's what he's saying. John 14.6, Jesus answered, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Those are harsh sayings. But if you're a follower of Jesus, you believe those things to be true. Now, do we operate with love? Grace, Yes. Kindness, yes. Gentleness, yes. We operate with all those things. Patience, yes. Why? Because we all fall short. We all can never meet the perfect standard. But these are still things that we hold to as believers and that we don't want to compromise on. 
and in a loving, kind, and gracious way, and gentle way, yeah, we're, we're bringing people in and wanting them to see the truth of who Jesus is and experience that reality uh, themselves. I wrote this down this week, that the most substantial lie we embrace is that we are better off without Jesus. We can do that in big ways. We can do that in small ways. That's the most substantial lie. Um, sometimes people just deconstruct their faith, um, and that can be a really good thing, because sometimes your version of Christianity was built off of someone who wasn't actually following Jesus. But the challenge sometimes is to figure out like where the deconstruction is coming from and why. Because is it more about who Jesus is or is it about who you are? And so in that process, it's like, all right, if you're deconstructing, it's like asking like, who is Jesus? And then begin to understand that at a deeper level. Because guess what? How many of you guys know Christians that have messed it up? Yeah, yeah. Everyone in this room knows a Christian. I mess it up sometimes. Like everyone, we all mess it up sometimes. But your faith should not be built off of me. It should be built off of the reality and the truth of who Jesus is. And so um, it's important to not ever compromise on that. Last thing is this. Once we find that Jesus is the truth, it becomes very difficult to believe the lies people impose on us or our own self-deceit. Or you can come up. I get it. Uh, there are a lot of messages um, that we do uh, here. We bring a lot of fun into it and everything else and all those things. Today, I really, like even in praying for uh, this service, I was like, man, I don't even know if I'm going to say a joke today. And the reason was because I wanted... I want you to just feel the weight. Because if we want to experience a move of God and we want to um, see what the Spirit of God can actually do in our lives, if we, if we want genuinely want to see God move in a powerful way, we can't compromise on the truth of what Jesus said about himself. We have to be honest with where we might be compromising a little bit in our own lives. That can be tough. But what this is and what our faith is, it's, it's, is it fruitful? Yes. Is it Joy-filled, yes. Is it fun? Yes. But it's also incredibly serious. Uh, literally life and death. And I just wanted all of us to think about it that way. Because some of you guys are raising kids. Will they know the seriousness of it? Some of you guys are in some incredible grouping of friends. Well, as a group, do you, do you know the seriousness and the life and death element of the reality and truth of Jesus? Some of you are dating someone. Some of you are maybe getting married. Some, you know, whatever. 
Are we compromising in any way? And bow our heads. God, we believe in the truth of who you are and what you said about yourself. From the youngest to the oldest person in this room, I just pray that um, we would understand and feel the seriousness and the depth and the weight of what this all is. Every one of us in this room can compromise in some kind of way and none of us live it out fully and God, you are so gracious and kind and loving in the midst of all of that. But God, we also know that in every great move that you do in individuals and in groups, people don't compromise on the truth of who you are. And they understand what goes along with this proclamation of believing in you and wanting to be your disciple. And, um, So God, I pray that in any area that we're compromising, because right now, I believe you're speaking to all of us in our hearts, and if we're open, then we'll realize maybe some areas we're compromising. God, I pray that we would, whatever area that is, that we would actually release that to you and trust in your spirit. We stay loving and kind and gracious and gentle. But God, we are built on and believe on and will refuse to compromise the truth of who you are and what you taught. Because that's what sets us free. Will you stand and sing this last song with us?